Welcome to Fire Away, Rudner Law's online show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Stuart Rudner. I'm an employment lawyer and mediator and your host of this session, season three, episode 12 of Fire Away, which means next month will be the start of season four. Fire Away streams online every month. And if you missed an episode or want to watch one again, they're always available on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, LinkedIn, and on our website. If you're watching live and you have a question, we'd be more than happy to answer them. So you can either post a comment on Facebook or YouTube, or you can tweet them to at Rudner Law. Today, I'm excited to be joined by two members of the Rudner Law team. First is Brittany Taylor, who is a partner in the firm. And second is Nadia Zaman, who is an associate with Rudner Law. Now, the last time that the three of us were on the show together was March 17th, when we very hastily changed our topic to address this new issue of a coronavirus. We discussed potential workplace issues, and at the time naively expected this would be a short-term thing that maybe we dedicate a couple of shows to and then move on. Since then, our firm has spent thousands of hours advising our clients and educating the public on COVID-19 workplace issues. We went through the initial phase of a large-scale large layoffs and job reductions, Back at the end of May, we prepared our lengthy guide to getting back to business. Now we're well into January with no end in sight. And just last week, the government of Ontario declared our second state of emergency and imposed a stay-at-home order, though that may have created more questions than it answered. Speaking of questions, we have asked you guys to send in yours so that we could provide you with as much information as we can and an update on where things stand as far as COVID-19 and the workplace. And that's the plan for the next half hour or so, is we're gonna to try to answer as many many questions as we can. So first of all, Brittany and Nadia, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, it should be a, a fun and interesting discussion. And it's fascinating to see how the questions have changed over the last, I guess, 10 months now. Uh, so we do have quite a few, so we're gonna get, uh, get right to it. And our first question is probably the most contentious one of, of the uh, current time. Uh, we're at the point now where vaccines are available. They're being rolled out to some people's views too slowly, but they are being rolled out and they are going to be available to the greater public over the course of this year. So we've seen the debates in the media. We've heard many of our employment law colleagues uh, argue about this and put forward their positions. But the question is very simple can an employer require that employees be vaccinated? Uh, so we're going to go to Brittany first, who will offer her thoughts on that. <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. Yeah, so you're going to get uh, both sides of the story, one from me and one from Nadia, uh, just to show that this is not a question that has a definite answer yet. So I'm going to start by arguing that no, an employer cannot mandate vaccines uh, in the workplace. So I think the issue that we're looking at here is really a balance between privacy and health and safety. And this is this is not a new thing for employers to deal with as a result of COVID. It's an issue that's been around for a long time. I think what we have to remember is that employers are not generally entitled to control what employees do outside of the workplace unless it directly impacts the workplace. Now, a lot of employers might be listening to me going, well, hold on a second, Brittany, this does impact my workplace. This is a safety issue. And it's true, as an employer, you have a duty to take all reasonable steps to ensure that you are um, keeping your workers safe, keeping the workplace safe. 
But I think the question that you want to be asking yourself is, are there other measures other than a vaccine, less invasive measures that would reasonably accomplish that goal of protecting the health and safety of employees? And in many cases, the answer to that is going to be yes. And we know that because we've been doing it for almost a year now. You know, masks, social distancing, hand washing, disinfecting surfaces, remote work, of course, is the number one way to keep everybody safe. Um, it, you know, there are ways that we know that we've put into practice that we can reduce any risks and keep employees and workers um, safe in the workplace. I think the other thing that employers have to keep in mind is that employees may have very legitimate objections to taking the vaccine, which are actually protected by human rights legislation. So if we think about an employee who might have an allergy, uh, you know, that would be covered under the ground of disability. If we're talking about, um, you know, religious reasons why somebody will not get a vaccine, that's also protected under human rights legislation. And we know that employers have a duty to accommodate that up to the point of undue hardship. Um, so, you know, the flip side of that, I think, not to do Nadia's job for her, but I think there there are times, there are legitimate reasons why an employer may require employees to get vaccinated, uh, why that may be an ap appropriate response. Um, you know, every circumstance is going to be a bit different. Um, you know, there may be no alternative, less invasive way to reasonably ensure health and safety than a vaccine. So such as people working in very high risk environments like a nursing home. So each situation is unique. I think my position is that employers should not assume that the default is that they can always require vaccinations, particularly since I think what we really want to keep in mind is that the government has chosen not to make this vaccine mandatory. And with that, I will turn it over to Nadia. <laughs> Actually, I'll, I'll jump in first, and then we'll turn it over to Nadia. But I think you know it's it's fascinating, and I think a lot of people have been reading along and you know online or wherever you get your uh, your employment law news. Uh, you can see the two different positions. You, either people say, yes, of course you can mandate vaccines, but there are exceptions, or no, of course you can't, but there are exceptions. So I think everyone's acknowledging that there are ex exceptions in some cases. It just depends on what you define as the, uh, the default. And, and I was just, you mentioned remote work. It made me think as you were talking, Brittany, that uh, the three of us work in the same firm and we have not been in the same room together uh, since last March. So it's <laughs> Kind of remarkable, although I do feel like I, I see you guys every day, although it's always in the context of Zoom. Right. So with that, I will put it over to Nadia to uh, to counter Brittany's points. Thanks, Stuart and Brittany, for uh, sharing your thoughts. And um, as, as Brittany and Stuart said, there are two sides to this debate. And I will suggest some points to show why employers can mandate vaccines or testing. While employers need to balance an employee's right to privacy against the employer's obligation to take all reasonable steps to provide a safe workplace, the balance can often tip in favor of safety. We see this in situations where an employee might request accommodation on the basis of a disability or on the basis of religion, but the employer is able to show that it would cause undue hardship to accommodate the employee as there are safety concerns at play. So safety can trump protected grounds under the human rights legislation in certain circumstances. Obviously, it's going to depend on the context and on the situation. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic is no doubt an unprecedented situation. We have seen the government step in to stall constructive dismissals for the purpose of the Employment Standards Act. We have seen temporary layoffs being deemed to be an infectious disease emergency leave. 
These measures help employers carry on with their business while providing employees with job protection. But at the end of the day, they reflect the unique nature of the pandemic itself. So how does all of this relate to mandating vaccines or testing? Employers have the right to make reasonable demands of their employees when it comes to health and safety. And mandating vaccines or testing would be a reasonable demand in this context in order to ensure the safety of its workers as well as customers and clients. Many employers may permanently shift to remote work, uh, but for most, um, uh, for a lot of employers, that will not be feasible. And mandating vaccines or testing would be a reasonable step to ensure a safe workplace. Now, of course, if an employee has a legitimate reason why they cannot be vaccinated, so for example, health reasons like Brittany mentioned, the employer would have an obligation to accommodate them up to the point of undue hardship. Again, at the end of the day, it's going to depend on the unique context and the particular facts of every case. But this is to show you that there are two sides to the debate and you shouldn't um, take an action without considering what the consequences are going to be. Great. Thanks, Nadia. And so, as is often the case, the short way of saying all of that is it depends. <laughs> but viewers have heard me and others say this many, many times. I mean, you're constantly balancing a number of considerations. There is very rarely a question that doesn't you know, overflow into different areas of law. And um, I've designed a course that we do through Osgood Professional Development and both Brittany and Nadia have, uh, have helped me with the course over the years. It's called HR Law for HR Professionals. And it's, that's one of the key points we often make is if you're asked a question, you being someone who has control over HR in your company, or if you're an employee who has a question about your employment, it's almost never a simple, you know, what is the, what does the Employment Standards Act say or what does the Human Rights Code say? You've got to take all of those things and more into account, including things like privacy concerns that both Brittany and Nadia have mentioned and safety concerns. So it does get quite complex and it's often a balancing of, of, different, uh, of different motivations and different rights. So move on to the, uh, the next question, uh, which is, does an employer have the right to contact an immunocompromised employee's doctor to ask whether they need to get the vaccine. Uh, so Brittany, what do you have to say about that one? <laughs> so it's an interesting question. I think, you know, we want to keep in mind that an employer absolutely has the right to request medical documentation from an employee confirming that it's safe for them to attend at, at work um, or whether they have any restrictions or limitations that could impact their ability to work safely. So in other words, an employer has a right and an obligation to basically do their due diligence in terms of making sure that an employee can work safely. Um, but without employee consent, an employer really should never be contacting an employee's doctor directly. I would be shocked if the doctor even talked to the uh, the employer in that circumstance. Um, and I think, you know, you also want to keep in mind as an employer how much information you need and how much you're entitled to in order to make the assessment of is it safe for this employee to be working. So you're not entitled to detailed medical information about the employee. You don't want to know their diagnosis or their treatment plan. Um, in some cases, you don't even want to know what the doctor's recommendations are in terms of that treatment plan. All you need to know as the employer is how does an employee's medical condition impact their ability to work safely? And is there anything I need to do any changes I need to make to ensure that that can happen. Yeah, thanks. And we, we've talked about this all the time. And it's another example of balancing, right? I mean, you as an employer are entitled to certain information, 
but you're balancing your duty to accommodate with your duty to respect the privacy rights of your employee. So again, you've got to figure out where that line is and the line or where the line falls usually depends on the circumstances. So these are fact-driven cases in almost every situation. So the corollary to that somewhat is, um, you know, you were talking about, can someone safely come to work? One of the questions that we're often asked is, what if I don't feel safe going to work? What can I do in January, 2021? And Nadia, that's, uh, that's over to you. So employees are generally entitled to refuse to work if it is unsafe. So if you don't feel safe going to work, you can talk to your employer. And once you report your safety concerns, the employer is required to investigate the situation and advise you whether the safety risk has been resolved or not. And if you continue to believe that there is a safety concern, then the Ministry of Labor can be asked to come in to investigate. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that the right to refuse unsafe work is intended to protect workers when the workplace is unsafe. So there must be reasonable and legitimate grounds for you to believe that there's a safety risk in the workplace. So if there's you know, a fear of getting sick, um, if there are no current incidents in the workplace or in, uh, other risk factors, then that's likely not going to be sufficient. But in a situation where let's say another employee has been diagnosed with COVID-19 or where let's say you're dealing uh, with the public regularly, then there may be a legitimate concern that needs to be addressed by the employer to ensure the health and safety of all workers. Great, thanks Nadia. And yeah, I mean, this is often the question that we've gotten, and I think we're getting it less lately, but we certainly were getting it for quite a while back in the spring, summer, and then I guess fall as well is I just don't feel comfortable going out. I prefer to stay home and either I want to work from home or I just don't want to go to work. And so just to confirm Nadia, what you're saying is, you know, assuming and putting the lock down for a moment aside, uh, what you're saying is that people can't refuse to work just based on that general anxiety. Right, exactly. I mean, if there was, um, if it was linked to a protected ground, let's say disability, then they would have a legitimate reason to refuse to work. Got it. Yeah. And it's, it's even more complicated, at least in Ontario now with the order last week and stay at home and the very clear direction that if people can work from home, they, they must work from home and it's an employer's obligation to uh, to oversee that. And just to sort of follow up on something you mentioned, Nadia, you know, people, if they don't feel safe, can always make a complaint to the Ministry of Labor uh, if they feel as though they should not be forced to go to work under the current stay at home order. They can contact the Ministry of Labor as well, who will uh, who will look into it and offer an assessment of whether there is a legitimate basis to say that someone can only do their work from the workplace as opposed to from home. Um, and that's probably a good segue to the next question I want to address, which is if people are working uh, in the workplace and there is a duty to make sure that it's as safe as possible, as Brittany talked about, and we all know employers have this general duty to make all reasonable efforts to provide a safe work environment, so what about PPE, uh, which we've talked a lot about over the last 10 months, uh, but whether we're talking about masks, whether we're talking about shields, gloves, hand sanitizer, whatever the case may be, is that the responsibility of the employer to provide or can an employer say that the employee has to essentially bring their own? Uh, so Brittany, that's, uh, that's over to you. Thanks, Stuart. 
I, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there with your introduction and talking about an employer's responsibility to ensure that the workplace is safe. And so what follows from that is generally speaking, it is going to be the requirement of the employer to provide any necessary PPE to keep their employees safe. Um, now, there, there's always going to be that fine line between what an employee wants and what an employer thinks is necessary, right? So there might be circumstances in which the employer is complying with public health guidelines. They're providing all the PPE they think is necessary to do that. And the employee maybe thinks they should be going one step further, right? So maybe the employer is providing masks, but they're not providing face shields, right? That might be an example where it, it's on the employee if they want that extra level of protection to, to go out and get that equipment for themselves if the employer has done everything reasonable that they need to to ensure the safety of the worker in that situation. And just to follow up on that point, because uh, I know we've had this question before where someone says, well, you know, my employer is not following the guidelines put out either by the Ontario government or by another government or by my particular professional or regulatory body. So therefore, they're not doing everything they have to. Uh, what, what, what do you say when people ask you that? I mean, I think the, the first step is is talking to the employer and giving them an opportunity to correct the situation. Um, if, if not, if the employer will not correct the situation, I think you've got uh, exactly what Nadia was just explaining, which is the option to refuse to work if you legitimately feel unsafe as a result of the employer not taking the legitimate steps or reasonable steps necessary to ensure your safety. Um, and, in, and as Nadia described, often in that situation, it, the ministry is going to have to get involved as the final arbiter of what what exactly are the methods and the steps that an employer needs to take to keep everybody safe. Yeah, and which is going to be case specific because all of these guidelines are not law. And I think a lot of people, it's, it's not easy to, under, to misunderstand that, but that's not a, an absolute requirement. It's a, it's a guideline. We observed a, a fascinating fight which hasn't really ended yet because we do a lot of work with dental practices. And the College of Dentists released their set of guidelines for how to keep the workplace safe. And the College of Dental Hygienists released their own set of, of guidelines. They were different. And we had hundreds of hygienists who refused to go to work because the dentists were not complying with the dental hygienist guidelines. And the dentists said we're complying with our own guidelines. So there's a lot of guidelines out there. Uh, and just because one person or one group says one thing doesn't mean it's the law. Uh, looks like the next question is yours as well, Brittany. Uh, so, um, and this, I, I know we've had clients who've been in this situation and we're seeing more and more of it, of course, as the numbers went up over the last few months. If there is a case in the workplace, uh, is there an obligation on, a, on an employer to report that? Right. And it depends on where you are, because uh, in the city of Toronto, we know that the answer is yes. Right. So the Toronto Medical Officer of Health did issue a, a letter of instruction uh, to all employers who are permitted to be open during the lockdown. Uh, to take certain additional measures in order to try to reduce the spread of, of COVID-19 as much as possible. And this included the duty to notify Toronto Public Health immediately as soon as the employer becomes aware of two or more people who test positive for COVID within a 14-day interval period. So there is a positive obligation to report, at least here in Toronto. And I apologize if I'm putting you on the spot here because we didn't talk about this uh, follow-up question. Um, but what about if it's the same employer but two different locations? 
I mean, that's a great question. I, I would say to be on the safe side, as long as you've got two people in your organization, that, then it should be something that you're reporting. Um, you know, I think that is the safe way to proceed. But I can understand why employers are hesitant to do that because they don't want to get put on the list of employers who have had an outbreak of COVID-19, uh, which is understandable, but to be honest, doesn't help us stop the spread if we can't identify areas where that's happening. Yeah, fair, fair enough. And I think that's one of those things uh, where we don't have a lot of guidance yet. And it looks like we have a, a question. So Rob, I'm trying to read. Thank God your handwriting is better than mine. <laughs> um, so, oh, okay. What are the legal differences between law and quote unquote guidelines? Is there government accountability? Um, Brittany, do you want to take that since it kind of follows up on what you were discussing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a question that we get a lot and uh, and that I think we are still mulling over sometimes when we get direction from from the government, which is not based in, in any uh, legal regulation. Right. So, I mean, I think a really good example to understand the difference between guidelines and laws is when we hear the premier speak or when he releases an FAQ. Right? Those are guidelines. They're not they're not based in any um, legal documentation. But when we actually get the regulations that are put out, that's the law that's governing uh, in terms of this is the final line of what we're required to do, what your obligations are, what your entitlements are. So guidelines are helpful in terms of interpreting what the legislation is attempting to do. In particular, a lot of times when we talk about things like the spirit of the legislation, which sounds very hokey, what we mean is this is what we think they're intending to do. This is the overarching goal of this piece of legislation. And a lot of the times that comes from things like hearing uh, politicians speak about the legislation and reading guidelines that can help us to interpret the legislation. In terms of accountability, though, it does get a little bit thorny because it's a guideline. It's not actually part of the regulation. So, you know, can you turn around and say, well, I left my house because Doug Ford told me that uh, it's in my discretion what's essential or not. Um, and now I've got a ticket. You know, can you use that as as a defense against the ticket? I mean, that's a really interesting question and probably not one with an easy answer. But, you know, I think that the government, when they're putting out guidelines, they do have a responsibility to make sure that they're what they're providing is is truthful. And if employers govern themselves based on those guidelines, that's often what we recommend as a best practice. Right. Is, is this this will help to ensure that you're doing everything you can. Um, so it's it's not that guidelines shouldn't be trusted. It's just that you need to understand that they are they're not legally binding. They're there to help you understand what the law is. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. And we often talk, you know, when we talk about the duty to make all reasonable efforts. So there's going to be a question if you don't follow a guideline, then you should be prepared to answer the question of why. Why didn't you follow it? And then that, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to follow it. You just need to have to, you need to, have to be able to justify why you didn't follow it. And if you can't justify that, you've got more, uh, more potential liability there. Uh, so one more follow up and then we'll get back to Nadia. Um, but we're talking about reporting. And this is a question I, I've had both personally and also professionally. So we're in the workplace and one person in the workplace tests positive. Uh, so do we have to tell everyone else in the workplace? And in particular, do we have to reveal the name of the person or people who tested positive? So Brittany, I think you're on for that one as well. 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I'll tackle this first from the reporting obligation perspective to uh, to Toronto, uh, Toronto Public Health. So, I mean, employers, what they have to do when they are making a report, when you've got the, those two or more cases, is you have to identify a contact person within the organization who um, public health can then contact and, and ask any questions that they need to. It doesn't actually say you have to provide the names of the employees who have been infected, but at the same time, there is also a requirement that you have an up-to-date list uh, that's accurate of all workers as well as their contact information. So it, on the face of it, you're not required to immediately identify who the employees are, but as part of public health investigation, they can ask for information about um, all of your staff as well as for their contact information. Um, in terms of from an employer perspective, like if I know somebody has tested positive for COVID, do I need to disclose that information to the rest of my rest of my staff? And I think that goes back to the debate that Nadia and I were having at the beginning of the show between privacy and safety, right? And you always want to try to balance these two interests as much as you can. So I think for an employer, the question should be, is it possible for me to make sure that employees who could be, could have been in contact with this person are aware that there might be a risk without me having to name the specific individual. And sometimes that's that's just not going to be possible, right? I mean, especially in a very small organization, it's right. it's probably not going to be possible to you know preserve the um, the identity of that person and keep it confidential. Um, but in a larger organization, you might be able to, right? You might be able to identify, you know, it was this department, somebody in this department who was impacted. So if you're in that department, we need you to quarantine, or we need you to go get tested, or you might want to get tested. Right. So it, I think it's again, it's a balancing act and it's going to depend on the particular circumstances of each case. Right. But it does get back to the least intrusive means of making sure people are kept safe again. Uh, and so following up on that, you mentioned people who may have to get tested or may have to self-isolate. So, Nadia, this is a question I know I've had a lot and I'm pretty sure you have as well. If someone has to self-isolate, are they entitled to be paid for that time? So generally, no, unless there's a contract or policy that states otherwise. So for example, the employer might have a paid sick leave policy that entitles the employee to paid time off. Um, and this is a question that we have actually received a lot. I think there's a lot of misconceptions. A lot of people think that if they are um, exposed in the workplace and need to self-isolate, then the employer should pay them. Um, we had been waiting to, you know, hear from the government to see if paid sick leaves are going to be reinstated. And uh, so far, you know, they're not. And there's a huge debate going on about that. But until that happens, there's no real obligation unless there's a contract or policy that provides otherwise. Great. Thanks. And yeah, that, that could be a fun topic for, uh, for an upcoming show of, of the whole issue of paid sick days, because we've had a lot of debate amongst the media and amongst our politicians on that point. Uh, but anyways, it's already 1257. So <laughs> I will uh, I will not digress. And I'm and we still have a lot of questions that we have yet to get to, but I'll try to I might jump around a bit, but I'll try to we'll try to address at least a few more. Uh, so like we've said, a lot of areas in Canada are on lockdown. Some like Ontario are now at the stay at home order where you're not supposed to attend to the workplace unless you absolutely have to. So one of the questions we get is who gets to decide whether someone is able to work remotely. Uh, so Brittany, what, uh, what can you offer on that? 
Right. And it's, this is a great question. And I think, you know, the, the answer seems to pretty, uh, pretty clearly be that this is in the discretion of the employer, right? So we, we know that um, the regulations imposing the stay-at-home order and, and, um, and requiring uh, that anybody who can work from home is required to do so, um, they're pretty clear in stating that essential work is going to include when the individual's employer has determined that the nature of the work requires attendance at the workplace. So I, I'm going to use that phrase that I used earlier, which is the spirit of the regulation suggests that there is a lot of pressure on employers to only require attendance when it's absolutely necessary. Right. So, I mean, I think what the government would not be sympathetic to seeing is somebody whose job, you know, 90 percent of it can be done remotely, but 10 percent uh, has to be done in the office and therefore the employer says you have to come in a hundred percent of the time right i think i think um in the spirit of the regulation what would be expected in that case is that you're looking at some balance between the two you know maybe people are coming in one day a week um, in order to do those tasks that have to be carried out in the office or maybe somebody's coming in to check the mail over lunchtime and you've got a rotating shift of who's doing that every day I think what, you know, unsurprisingly, what the government has said is that they cannot identify specific jobs that can or cannot be done remotely. And I, I agree with them on this point. I think that would be a ridiculous task to try to undertake because everyone's job, even with the same title, is slightly different. Um, however, as you pointed out, Stuart, if an employee does feel like they are being asked to come into the workplace and there's no reason for that, that they that their job can be done entirely at home or mostly at home, they can contact the ministry to request assistance with that. Yeah, well, that's, uh, thanks for covering off that sort of partial requirement because I think that seems to be coming up more and more often. So I'm going to shift over to another question that we are still getting a lot, which is, relates to childcare. So much of the country still has kids doing virtual learning, either entirely or partially. Uh, so the question we often get is, my kids are at home. I have to stay at home too to look after them. Am I entitled to work from home or can I work from home? So Nadia, how do we respond to that? Yeah, this is, this is a great question and uh, we have been getting this a lot. And the answer is it depends as, as always. So employers, <laughs> yeah. so employers have a duty to accommodate employees up to the point of undue hardship based on any protected ground under the human rights legislation. So in Ontario, that's the human rights code. Now, family status is a protected ground under the code. However, employers are obligated to provide a reasonable accommodation and not the employee's preferred accommodation. So you can request um, you can request accommodation and your employer will then have the obligation to assess your need, consider options and provide a form of reasonable accommodation, which may include work from home, but could also take another form such as staggered shifts as long as it does it does not result in undue hardship to them. So, and then that's again, a very high threshold to meet. Now in the context of um, the latest orders, um, obviously if it's a situation where you can work from home, um, then the employer is obligated to allow you to do so. Um, but let's say like, you know, Brittany suggested, if there's a situation where only 10% of your work needs to be done from the office and 90% can be done from home, your employer can ask you to come in, you know, 10% of the time um, for that, but they should work with you to figure out 
um, how the accommodation is going to work with respect to your kids being home from school. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and just to follow up on that to make sure it's clear. So yeah, if, if your employer needs you to come in a part of the time, then you can be asked, you know, do you have a partner or someone else who can help with the childcare so that you're able to come into the office or the workplace from time to time. So as you said, people can't just insist upon a certain form of accommodation. And the other important point there is this is a discussion of working from home uh, where you're able to work remotely, but accommodation can also be a leave of absence. So mm -hmm. if you can't go to work and you can't work remotely, then you will be entitled to accommodation, but that might mean that you're staying at home, in which case you're not paid. Uh, so you got to be very careful about insisting upon a certain type of accommodation because it can uh, it can get pretty risky because you might get an accommodation you don't want. Um, I'm just looking at the questions we have left and also the time, uh, and I'm going to skip forward a bit through some of them. Well, this kind of follows up on what I was just saying about being paid or not paid. So um, the question that uh, I get, get to, back also to sick days and the reason why a lot of people are paying are pushing for paid sick days. Uh, the question is, I don't have enough paid sick days or I don't have any left. Uh, what if I test positive and I have to quarantine? Uh, what do I do then? And uh, Brittany, I think you were going to address that one. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, an employee who tests positive for COVID-19 or who has to quarantine as a result of um, contact with somebody who's tested positive or for any other recognized reason, they are entitled to a leave of absence under the Employment Standards Act, right? That's going to fall within that infectious disease emergency leave category. In terms of financial support, this is available through um, the federal government. So we've got the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, and this essentially provides $500 a week for up to two weeks for anyone who is unable to work for 50% of the week because they contacted COVID or more, obviously are self-isolating for reasons related to COVID or who have underlying conditions, are undergoing treatments or have other sicknesses that, in the opinion of your doctor, would make you more susceptible to COVID. So there are supports, financial supports that are available for people who do need to quarantine or who have tested positive and need to take time off from work. Great, thanks. And I am going to skip forward and I think this will be the last question unless either uh, of you have something else you think we absolutely have to cover. Uh, but this relates to controlling employees off-duty conduct because we have seen this question a lot. We saw it back you know, during the Black Lives Matter protests, which seems like years ago now. Uh, and the question was, you know, can I ask my employees if they were at rallies? And so we've been getting this a lot. Can I ask my employees what they're doing in their off-duty off time? I, I heard from so-and-so that somebody else is getting together with friends after work. I heard they're not following guidelines and I heard that they are exposing themselves to the virus. Can I ask them? Can I suspend them? Can I fire them? Uh, so Brittany, uh, I guess you can try to lump all those questions together. Uh, what can an employer do about all the, the off-duty conduct that could potentially expose, uh, expose other employees to risk? Yeah, great question. And one, I agree that we're getting a lot. Um, people are obviously quite concerned about this issue. I mean, I think, first of all, I'll say that you can always ask, right? You can always ask and see what the employee is willing to share with you. Uh, but I think you want to keep a few things in mind. So firstly, 
Uh, generally speaking, an employer is not entitled to control what an employee does in their spare time, right? In their off-duty time, they are basically entitled to do what they want unless it directly impacts on the workplace, right? And there's a couple of ways that it can do this. Um, it can impact from a safety perspective uh, in terms of that worker coming back into the workplace, for example, if they've potentially been exposed to um, other individuals who might have COVID. It can impact from a reputational perspective if you've got an employee engaging in, you know, anti-masker protests and it's really obvious that they are connected back to the company. Uh, that can be an impact. Um, it can also be an impact in the sense that does it breach your own workplace policies? And I think that's the second question that you want to ask yourself because in order to discipline an employee, there has to be a wrongful action. Right. So an employee just choosing not to follow health guidelines that are recommended by Health, health Canada, that's not on its own, on its face, sufficient to ground disciplinary action. You have to ask yourself, well, what specifically has the employer employee done wrong from the employer's perspective? Uh, and I think that's where you ask those questions. You know, is there a policy in place that has been breached by the employee? Um, has their action resulted or could it result in reputational harm to the company? Uh, are they putting other employees at, at risk, right? And, and so I think these are all questions that an employer needs to be asking themselves before they have kind of that knee-jerk reaction of, I'm just going to fire this person or I'm just going to discipline this person. And I think the third point there is just that discipline does not mean always termination for cause, right? That's actually the very, very end point. Uh, the last recourse is, is termination for cause, right? So just because you have the ability to discipline, maybe you've answered yes to one of those questions that I asked about how does it impact the workplace? So yes, okay, so now you know you can discipline the worker. The next question is what level of discipline is appropriate in the circumstances? And only in really egregious cases are we going to get to the point where it's automatically caused for termination. Yeah, and that's, that's a great excuse to plug my book. So I will mention <laughs> that I wrote a book, uh, which we just had the anniversary of the launch party nine years ago. The book's called Fire Away. No, hang on. The book's called You're Fired. The show's called Fire Away. <laughs> Uh, books called You're Fired, Just Cause for Dismissal in Canada, and it talks about all these issues and many more, including the fact that just because you have a reason to discipline an employee doesn't mean you can fire them. That's a very two very different standards, as well as we, we have a whole chapter on off-duty conduct, which never even contemplated a pandemic. So we'll have to do an update on that and, and talk about that in the near future. Um, but I am mindful of the fact that it's 10808. So Normally at this point, I would take my turn to uh, to fire away and, and offer my rant, but we're we're going to uh, I'm going to be equal opportunity here, and we're each going to offer our top employment law tips for COVID uh, COVID nineteen in two thousand twenty one. So, Brittany, do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, I think mine just follows from what I was just saying, which is that that resist knee jerk reactions. Um, you know, whether it's a request for accommodation, whether it's disciplinary action against an employee. Whatever it is, we are living in very complicated times. Um, even outside of a pandemic, this advice would be the same, but it's even more important now is take the time, consider your options, consider your obligations before you react. Yeah, great advice. And Nadia, what's your uh, top employment law tip for COVID-19 in 2021? So this may sound self-serving, but I would strongly recommend seeking legal advice from an employment lawyer. Um, and 
I mean, employment law has been constantly evolving in light of the pandemic. And we've seen a lot of situations where even employers acting with the best intentions in mind can find themselves exposed to significant liability. Yeah, two great tips, and I'll, I'll throw mine in, uh, which will be very along very similar lines. Don't make assumptions. People are both underestimating and overestimating their rights, often at the same time, both of which are dangerous. And for example, we've seen employers who are struggling to get by without key staff because those people refused to return to work when they were recalled, and the employer assumed they couldn't force them to. And in the same situation, we've had people risk their jobs because they assumed they had the right to choose not to return to work. So as Nadia said, get proper advice before you make a decision. Fascinating that we, we all worked on these independently. All of our tips apply, generally speaking, these don't relate specifically to COVID-19, but as we've often said, all of the mistakes that we see are, are almost all of them anyways, are caused by lack of information about employment law, people not understanding their rights and obligations, not taking the time to get proper advice, uh, so we strongly encourage everyone to get advice before they make decisions. And the cost of getting good advice is almost always less than the cost of not doing so. So that's probably a great segue into, uh, into my concluding comments for uh, season three, episode 12, uh, because I think we are well over time, but hopefully uh, it was worth your time to, uh, to tune in and stay with us. So thank you to everybody for tuning in and thanks especially to, uh, to Brittany and Nadia for joining me today. Uh, it is 2021 and yet we are still not at the end of the pandemic. So whether they are pandemic related or otherwise, like I said a few minutes ago, we're still seeing people make significant mistakes because they're making assumptions. And the reason behind that is because they don't treat their employment relationships as legal relationships. So one of our real motivations at Rudner Law is we want people to make informed decisions. So I'll invite everyone to keep up to date on employment law issues by following our social media, which is extremely active, by subscribing to our newsletter, and in particular, check out our COVID-19 resource page on our website, which we are constantly keeping up to date as things evolve. But as I always say, none of that replaces legal advice that's tailored to your specific circumstances. If you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do, so feel free to reach out to us. If you have any questions, please contact us at any of our social media channels or at, e at info at rudderlaw.ca. Past episodes can always be found on YouTube, on our website, or on Facebook and LinkedIn. And if you like our page or subscribe to our channels, you'll receive notifications when we are live. And lastly, and as always, I want to thank Rob, Rebecca, and Mark for helping to put the show together. See you all next time. Take care and stay safe.